Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. joined today by Ambassador Nestor Forster, Brazil's Chargé d'Affaires in Washington. He's originally from Porto Alegre, Brazil. Ambassador Forster joined the Brazilian Diplomatic Service in 1986 and has since served in Canada, Costa Rica, and the United States, including at the Brazilian Embassy here in Washington, but also at the Brazilian consulates in Connecticut and New York. He was a consul and opened the consulate in Hartford, Connecticut. Ambassador Forster, thanks so much for being on our podcast today. We're really grateful. Thank you very much, Dan, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Ambassador, you've come to this role. I'm really glad you're here, but you've had an interesting journey getting here. Correct. Yes. I've been with the Brazilian Foreign Service for the past 35 years. And uh, my first foreign assignment was our embassy in Washington from 92 to 95. And after that, I went to Canada, to Costa Rica, you know, working in different sections, mostly in economic affairs, trade policy, some political affairs in Costa Rica. Then I moved back to Brasilia, had an interesting experience there organizing, helping organize the first institutionalized presidential transition in Brazil back in 2002, learning from the American model of handling, you know, in a very civilized and organized way, the baton from one administration to the incoming one. It was a very interesting experience for me professionally. Also, after that, I was once again assigned here to our embassy in Washington, where I did the work in the financial section. After that, I went on to open our consulate in Hartford, you know, trying to serve the large Brazilian community that lives in, uh, in New England, in the New England area. After that, I went back to Brasilia, did some work in the information technology area. And then I was assigned to our consulate in New York and back here to Washington since early 2017. So Ambassador, in some ways, you're probably one of the top experts in the Brazilian Foreign Ministry and the Brazilian Foreign Service on the United States. I I don't like to brag or boast or anything, but it's just, you know, a matter of years of experience accumulated. I think I have over 15 years of uh, professional experience working in the United States most of the time at our embassy here in Washington. That's amazing. It strikes me that the U.S. and Brazil has a shared future. I really do believe this, and I think we've got so many things in common. Can you talk about the opportunities in our relationship? Absolutely. Before I talk about the future, if you allow me, I think, you know, we can only understand the tremendous potential we have, Brazil, U.S., as the two largest democracies in the hemisphere, the two largest economies. If we take a step back, we'll look at the history. And Brazil and the United States have a very unique history. Brazil enjoys with the United States the longest relationship it has with any country in the world. It has never been interrupted. You know, we had very old relations, very well-established relationships with our neighbors in South America, but that was subject sometimes to some ups and downs, uh, you know, it was not continuous as we had with the United States. And it was a tremendous influence. For instance, when Brazil became a republic in the late 19th century, Back in 1891, we had our first constitution. It was entirely based in the American constitution. 
So Brazil is a federative republic inspired in the American model that has a tremendous repercussions for the way the state is organized in Brazil, the, the way institutions are organized in Brazil. Brazil had the first American chamber of commerce anywhere in the world back in 1905 with five American companies. Today, MCHEM is the largest chamber in the world in terms of the product of its members and the number of members both in Brazil and the United States. We also, you know, we fought together shoulder to shoulder during World War II. Brazil sent 25,000 soldiers to help liberate Italy from fascism, Nazi fascism uh, back then in, in uh, 44, 45. So this is a whole historic background that unites our countries. Of course, our relationship is subject to ups and downs, more intensity, less intensity. But one thing that can be said is, you know, there's a tremendous potential. And you asked me about looking into the future. We are trying to do many things. We have a tremendous agenda going on, stemming from the shared values that we have based on this historical past. I'm talking about respect for the rule of law, for democracy, for human rights, for individual freedoms, for religious freedom. All that is a common and a shared background between Brazil and the United States. And it gives us a tremendous foundation to build upon. Then, you know, we talk about the current agenda and things we are doing, looking into the future. So one thing that comes immediately to mind is that the things we're doing in the economic and trade area. Since our presidents met last, this was in uh, early March in Mar-a-Lago in Florida. We had a tremendous dinner there and uh, many things were discussed and we agreed that we should have by the end of this year some uh, meaningful package of trade measures. And there are ongoing things that we are doing in this area, trade facilitation, digital trade, good regulatory practices, anti-corruption measures. This is all being discussed as we speak. We have made great strides towards reaching, you know, finalizing this package. We hope to wrap it up by the end of this year or even before that. So that's one area that has known tremendous advancements. We also have very close cooperation in the defense and military area. We celebrated last year an agreement called the Technology Safeguards Agreement, which enabled American companies to use a launching base we have in northeastern Brazil to launch satellites. It's supposed to be the best place in the world to launch a satellite. It's just two degrees south of the equator, and you can launch in any direction. We also signed a second agreement for research and development of defense products, which is an agreement, the first Latin American country to do that with the United States, only 14 of the world have it. I mean, there's a whole host of measures in this area, but there's much more. There's the whole area of science and technology, space exploration. Brazil is actively participating in the Artemis project to go back to the moon in a manned a tripulated flight. It's a woman this time. We are working with that project. Brazilian companies are participating in their you know, scientific projects in that. We also have been doing a tremendous amount of cooperation in fighting the pandemic. You know, we have received great help from the United States, either of donations, you know, of ventilators, of medicine, but also in uh, allowing us to join a small group of countries with access to all the discussion on uh, new ideas for vaccines, new therapies. It's a group coordinated by the White House, and we have been participating into these meetings at a very, very high level. There is also the cooperation in the education area. You know, the amount of Brazilian students that come every year to, to the United States. There are things that don't depend on government, like tourism, which we hope will come back soon enough. Brazilians like to go to sunny Florida and uh, visit the parks and uh, go to New York and uh, go to the shows and so on. We have historically been one of the largest groups of foreign tourists coming to the United States. We also receive a significant amount of American tourists in Brazil. 
If I can say one thing that perhaps puts into perspective what we're trying to do, you know, we're trying to realize a potential which has been subpar in many aspects in, in previous administrations. We do not see, if you look at countries that have come a long way in terms of economic and social development, uh, you see that most countries who have done great strides, all of them had at one point a very special relationship with the United States. You look at what happened to Germany and Japan after World War II. You, you look at uh, what happened to, to Korea later on, South Korea. Taiwan. Taiwan, and then China, communist China itself. If it were not for MFN status in the late 70s, China would not be the economic power it is today. We think in Brazil that we have not realized, we have not fulfilled the tremendous potential we have in this relationship with the United States. And we have the very fortunate moment of the convergence of views of between our two heads of state that enable us to energize that fundamental basis of commonality in principles that we share. It's a unique moment. You've mentioned a number of things I want to push on. Why do you think we haven't fully realized this potential up until now? Is it a personality-driven challenge? Look, there are different factors there. I don't think there's one single factor that impeded that movement. At times, it was the international context. For instance, uh, back in the mid to late 90s, we had a good relationship between the Brazilian president and the American president, but it didn't produce the sorts of results we are seeing now, concrete things resulting, stemming from this relationship, because of what? There was a framework perhaps lacking. The international context was full of crises that hurt, especially emerging markets such as Brazil back then, so it was not fulfilled. After that, there was perhaps some element of ideological barriers, you know, some anti-Americanism still going through. We are very glad to have turned that page. We see that as a very democratic thing. Some people say it's ideological. We, we like to think this. If you look at the tremendous love that Brazilians have for America, you know, for the country itself, its products, its culture, uh, it, and it's been there for a long time. Compared to other countries in the Western Hemisphere, it's a much more pro-U.S. outlook than, say, Argentina or even Mexico. Absolutely. And, and, we've, and we've been like that for a very long time. So I think it's only natural that our foreign policy would reflect, let's say, popular sentiment towards our countries, which is reflected in the, in the tourism, in the amount of Brazilians that come to study in the United States, and uh, you know, the very appreciation that we have for American culture which we, uh, fortunately enough, uh, we see reciprocated. You know, the amount of interest we see in the United States for Brazil, for Brazilian culture, it's also very high. And, uh, you know, that is another thing that brings our two countries together. Well, as I told you, Ambassador, I love Brazil. I love the food. I love Guarana, the soda. I always get the Guarana light because I'm trying to watch my weight, but I love Guarana light. And there's a before and after in my life when I heard the Jobim Sinatra album. I'm an enormous Sinatra fan, but this blew my mind. I did not know what Bossa Nova was, and it still sends chills down my spine just thinking about the first time I heard that album. It blew my mind. Bossa Nova is an enormous gift of Brazil. I love Bossa Nova. Now, let me talk about, you have a fabulous culture You have an enormous potential for your creative economy. I know this has been sort of a política do Estado for Brazil to think about culture and its creativity and innovation. Talk about what your hopes are around that, because it seems to me that is going to be an important part of Brazil's future is the creative economy and culture as part of that. I share your enthusiasm for Brazilian music as well. You know, I'm a big fan of 
bossa nova of Brazilian samba. I used to play in my youth, I used to play Chorinho, which is uh, the quintessential Brazilian music, uh, mostly instrumental. You know, I was born in Rio in the uh, 20s, 30s. And it's again, this blend, a very unique blend of Brazilian rhythms and influences from different parts which is very unique. But, you know, creativity is certainly one element of, of what we see as Brazilianness, And uh, you can see it in music. You can see it in other areas, like in fashion and design, for instance, you know. Not Nine West is a brilliant Brazilian company, right? There you go. I was going to talk about that. You know, female shoes. Brazilian design is, uh, you know, one of the top in the world. It's very well considered. We have been made big inroads in other areas of designs, you know, like furniture, for instance, and uh, household goods. I think there's a a whole element of Brazilian creativity coming to fruition in that area as well. But, uh, you know, when we talk about creativity and innovation, we also have to talk about technology. And uh, it's one thing that few people know that behind Facebook and behind Instagram, there were Brazilian developers in both cases, you know, partners with the more famous current uh, people there. But there was a Brazilian behind each one of them, a Brazilian developer. And we have a growing presence in Silicon Valley of Brazilian startups, and uh, we certainly see that as, as something that needs to be promoted and grow. We have a forum called CEO Forum. It's a bilateral private sector framework for a dialogue between 10 big CEOs from the US and 10 big from Brazil. And uh, I'm very glad to say that one of these CEOs in the Brazilian side is a young man of 30 years old with one of these startups, which, you know, a few years, they grow so much in their businesses and generate so much employment and revenue and so on that uh, that's uh, we all need. So talk about, you have, obviously, the United States is an important trading partner, though I think there's a lot more potential for our trade relationship. You've touched a little bit on it. We're spending a lot of time in Washington. I'm going to use the word worried. We're worried about China. Could you talk about the Brazil-China relationship? China is also an important partner to Brazil. Talk about how is the Brazil-China relationship? It's a very important relation for us, as it is for the United States and for many other countries. Yes. In the case of Brazil, China is our number one trading partner. It's the main destiny for our exports, mostly raw materials and agricultural products, compared with the U.S., where the majority of the products we export are manufactured goods, more value-added goods. It also has a very important presence in, in investments in Brazil, and uh, we have a, a mature relationship, an important relationship. In terms of the potential, you know, it's basically a relationship based in economic interests. We mentioned the trade, we mentioned the investment. I don't see that we have the same element, as I said, with regards to the United States, you know, sharing the principles and the values. So geopolitically, we don't have much to share with the, the, the People's Republic of China. It's a very important economic partner for Brazil. And we, of course, we want to develop that relation as much as we can. You can hear me breathe a sigh of relief, Ambassador. <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> Good. Let me ask, there's been some discussion about Brazil joining the OECD. I think it's related a little bit to this issue of trade and connectivity and technology. I just wrote a piece in thehill.com. The Secretary General is coming open. There are five major elections in the multilateral system coming open. WTO, led by a Brazilian, he's stepping down unexpectedly. That's coming open. The head of the OECD, led by a Mexican. We also wrote a major report about the future of the OECD. But the IDB, the Inter-American Development Bank presidency, is open. That's getting a lot of attention. We could also talk about that if you want. Or we could talk the EBRD. So you've got all this ferment and change in the multilateral system. 
But OECD in particular, as your government has expressed an interest in becoming a member of the OECD, could you talk a little bit about your interest in this? I'm interested in it. I'm very pro the OECD. I'm very pro Brazil joining the OECD. And maybe one of the things we ought to be doing together, Ambassador, is working on that to helping make that happen. Absolutely. I'm glad you raised that topic. Brazil's OECD accession, it's part of our plan for our future in the economic terms. So we've been engaged in domestic economic reform. Last year, we did the public pension system reform, which is a kind of taboo being tried for 30 years, never succeeded. Last year, we wrapped it up. It's a tremendous, tremendous step ahead for reducing costs, bringing fiscal sustainability to Brazil, correcting distortions, etc. We are very much committed to tax reform this year. All those reforms, they must be coupled together with something that's overarching, that brings it all together, which is our accession to the OECD, which we think it's only natural. It's something that, you know, the OECD should welcome with more open arms, perhaps because of the size of the Brazilian economy and how relevant Brazil is a player for the international economy with the reforms it's undertaking. I will also note that Brazil has already adhered to some about a third of all the agreements, 280 agreements in the OECD, Brazil is a part to a, about a third of those, about 80 agreements. So we have done great strides in terms of economic reform. We are ready to do more. We've been knocking at the door. At one point, there was some reluctance from the American government in supporting Brazil. That entirely changed since the Bolsonaro administration was elected. And, uh, you know, when uh, Bolsonaro first, President Bolsonaro first came to the United States in March 2019, the U.S. changed its position and expressed strong support for Brazil's accession. That was very much welcome by us. We still need to work with our European friends, bring them on, uh, address the situations there in Paris on uh, how to formalize and to start Brazil's accession. Because once you start the accession process, it takes a couple of years to finalize it, to wrap it up. There are lots of reforms that need to be done, lots of negotiations that go on sector by sector, and we are ready to engage in those. And we see that as bringing together what we want to do in the economic realm with domestic reform, with the agreement we had celebrated between Mercosur and the European Union, just wrapped up last year after 25 years of negotiation. And we plan to spend much less time in doing perhaps a commercial agreement with the United States down the road as well. We see that all coming together, trying to bring Brazil to try in earnest something called capitalism. That sounds good to me. I think we ought to have CSIS, a Brazilian think tank, and a European think tank perhaps. We ought, the bad news is we're all sitting in our basements, Ambassador, but the good news is we're sitting in our basements. So we could do virtual roundtables. There's something like 12 different tracks. We ought to be helping you move this along. It just seems to me this would be a huge accomplishment. I know this is beyond politics for Brazil. Absolutely. But the planets are aligned, and we should be working with you on this. This is very important. The OECD, for many people who don't listen, is probably one of the most important institutions that many people have never heard of. It is the President Santos called it El Club de Buenos Practicas, the Club of Good Practices. But it's much more than that. But it's a unique institution of market democracies. Colombia is a member. Mexico is a member. Costa Rica is a member. Chile is a member. There's no reason Brazil should not be a member. And frankly, if Brazil were to become a member, it would create a positive domino effect across the Western Hemisphere. My vision is we ought to have instead of 38 members of the OECD, we should have 48 or 50. 
And Brazil could really create a new generation of make it attractive for countries like Indonesia. I've had conversations with Kazakhstan. I think if you guys became a member, Kazakhstan would not only make the kind of reforms it needs to make, but I think it would become more democratic because of the example of Brazil. A country like Kazakhstan will want to do the same thing that you're doing. It's a no brainer. We should be helping facilitate this and make this happen. This is a very important, important thing that Brazil is trying to do. And we want to help you do it. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I mentioned that we're all stuck in our basements. So there's this COVID thing going on. We're experiencing COVID in the United States. You're experiencing COVID in Brazil. Could you talk about how is COVID impacting Brazil? You've mentioned briefly that there's been so some very successful U.S.-Brazil collaboration on this. Talk about how Brazil is responding to COVID. Well, we are very serious in our response to it from the get-go. The first movement from our health ministry we're taking back in January, when we first learned about the pandemic. A group was created dedicated to the, coordinate the, the efforts uh, to fight the disease. The federal government has a role to play in setting guidelines and providing resources to state administrations and local administrations who are the ones, let's say, on the front line, dealing with the measures of social distancing and uh, how to micromanage the situation. There are things that President Bolsonaro has said about this, and he himself has said, gotten the disease, it was announced this week, that were misinterpreted. One thing that he said, and I'll repeat it, I think it makes all sense, is that there's not one size fits all solution to fight the pandemic, especially if you consider the continental size of Brazil, you know, continental Brazil, you know, that is bigger than the 48 contiguous U.S. states. It's the size of a continent and it's a very diverse country in regional terms, in geographical terms. You have the Amazon, you have the wetlands in the center, you have a very industrial urban south, you have the northeast with the semi-arid areas, the coastal big towns, etc. You cannot apply one strategy that will suit all the challenges we have. So we've been fighting it very seriously. And the second thing that the president said, which also I think makes a lot of sense, is that this is not only a sanitary crisis, it's mainly a health problem, but it cannot be addressed only in the health domain. We must also bear in mind, you know, the economic, the social consequences that our measures have. So he's proposing from the outset this holistic approach, which, you know, later was endorsed even by, the, I think, the World Health Organization and many experts said, that, you know, yeah, this is the way to go. In the case of Brazil, you know, we're an emerging market, a developing economy. We have in Brazil some 40 million people who work in the informal sector, 40 million. What do you do with those guys? You tell them to lock down? These are the kind of people who they go out every day in the morning to win their bread for their families. If they're going to shine shoes or wash cars or have a kiosk that's informal, they're not Zooming. They're not on some Microsoft Notes or Microsoft Google Meets or something. That's for knowledge workers of the late 20% of the, of the the folks who listen to podcasts like or folks who do podcasts like me and you, Ambassador. I agree with you. And there's an elitist element in trying to impose the view from this minority upon everybody else without taking into consideration their concrete uh, struggles. If you're waiting tables, if you're serving on an oil derrick, if you're working in the informal economy, saying just do your work on a Zoom call, that's not real. That's not realistic. And also, just like in the United States, we have South Dakota, which is rural, and then we have New York, which is urban. We have a continental-sized country, and you have a continental-sized country. And so that makes a lot of sense to me that you would apply certain sets of approaches to cities and a certain set of approaches to very rural open spaces. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that's exactly what we try to do. The president also, I think he put, uh, you know, 
into action his words by promoting, for instance, cash transfer mechanisms to get to these 40 million people in the informal sector. And then another 20 million people who are called the invisibles, people who are not even counted in the social programs, the social safety net that we have in Brazil. So, you know, 60 million people are being impacted with monthly cash transfers, which bottom line help to pay their bills for food, uh, uh, what have you. So this has even been praised by the World Bank and the IMF, by the way, that Brazil is doing the right thing in this area. It's not what you see in the headlines of some of the newspapers, but it's being done. There are several fiscal measures, you know, aimed at helping small and medium-sized businesses, sectors that are most impacted by the disease, like the tourism industry, the transportation industry, and so on. We had measures taken by the Brazilian Central Bank, perhaps one of the first to move and move at a very, very significant uh, way in providing liquidity to the whole system. You know, they provided something like 10% of our GDP in terms of uh, liquidity to the system to reduce the economic impact of the pandemic. To sum it all up, I think the best comment on the situation was made by our Minister of the Economy, Minister Paulo Guedes, when he said that the pandemic and all the challenges associated with the disease should not be used as an excuse to procrastinate or not move as fast with our reform process. On the contrary, what we should do is accelerate the reform processes because those are the ones who are going to enable us to bring growth back to the country and generate the kind of uh, opportunity we need for all Brazilians. Makes a lot of sense, Ambassador. I've got one last question for you. Brazil is home to enormous environmental resources. Tell us about how Brazil sees the many assets that it has and how does Brazil balance environmental conservation and protection for the opportunity for people to make a living? Excellent question. And you go to the heart of the matter. Last year, we had this big outcry about the Amazon being on fire. This year is, uh, you know, Brazilians are cutting down the forest, etc. It's nothing could be farther from the truth. You know, we have the seasonal fires in the Amazon. We had them last year. What we have in Brazil, in the Amazon, is number one, one thing that's not very well known. We have the most strict environmental regulations anywhere in the world in the Amazon. What am I talking about? There's a rule in our forest code that says that only 20% of your property, if it's located in the Amazonic region, can be used for economic activity. You have to preserve 80% of the original forest cover in the area, 80%. That applies to the whole area of the Amazon. And, you know, of course, there's always the challenge of enforcement. But then comes President Bolsonaro. And last year, what he did was to declare what we call a law and order measure for environmental reasons. It basically, it's a constitutional provision that allows the army, the Brazilian army, to go and enforce environmental legislation. And that's exactly what we did last year with the fires. We had 43,000 soldiers mobilized, 2,500 firemen on the ground. This year, uh, there was a little increase in the amount of deforestation, a little increase. And uh, if you see at the trend, this started like seven years ago, slightly moving up. It's a concern for us. There is a problem there. We want to address it. And again, the president mobilized, invoked the same constitutional measure. And we have this year Operation Green Brazil 2, the second installment of it. And to signify the high political importance that the president attaches to the Amazon question, the environmental question, he designated his own vice president, Vice President Mourão, to lead an initiative on the Amazon, what's called the Council on the Legal Amazon, to coordinate all the efforts among the several federal agencies that are involved. And this is already giving results in the amount 
of apprehensions of illegal logging that were made. People were arrested for you know illegal deforestation and so on and so forth. But of course, those are repressive measures. What we want, and that goes back to your, your original question on how you formulated so well, the big challenge is sustainable development. And so many people, especially in the environmental community, they want only to talk about the sustainability aspect of it. I made the joke when I went on NPR last year, said, look, some uh, rich Europeans want to transform the Amazon in a big park where they can spend their vacation and be very happy about it in virtual signaling, etc. That's not good for Brazilians. You know, what President Bolsonaro wants to do is bring sustainable development for the 25 million Brazilians who live in the Amazon region and who have the lowest indexes of human development, you know, according to World Bank and, uh, and UN and so on. So that's the challenge, bringing economic opportunity. What are we talking here? We're talking about using the tremendous potential that the region has for things like ecotourism or pharmaceutical industry, or the fishing industry, you know, on a sustainable basis, or doing clean mining. It's something that can be done with the technology that's available today. You know, uh, there's a provision in our constitution for mining in areas which are indigenous reserves. Huh? The indigenous people in Brazil, they are asking, there are several who are asking, look, we are sitting here with a subsistent economy. It's not enough to, to feed our kids. And we are sitting on these tremendous resources in the soil. Why can't we exploit them? Of course, on a sustainable, on a clean way that will bring economic growth, jobs, opportunity for these people. They, we cannot forget about the people. It's the trees and the people. It's the trees and the people. And Ambassador, one way or the other, these resources are going to be developed. And Brazil's got a set of rules to do it right. It seems to me that we ought to be finding ways to support and partner with Brazil to do it in a responsible way and be a responsible partner. It's it's your assets to the extent we should do so in a way that's in line with what the people want, as well as doing it in a balanced and responsible way. Since you mentioned it, I forgot to mention when I was talking about what we can do together, we are doing important things in the environment. There are projects for protection of biodiversity, bilateral projects, protection of biodiversity in the Amazon. There are other things going on, but there is a shared view that we, could do more. Again, the potential is there. So we're examining ways, you know, with EPA, with the Department of State here, we're in conversation to see how can we deepen our cooperation in environmental matters. Thank you for your time. I'm so appreciative. It's a privilege to spend time with you. As I told you earlier, I don't like Brazil. I love Brazil. And I'm really appreciative that we've had a chance to have this conversation. I'm going to follow up with you. We're going to follow up on several things we've talked about here. I'm so grateful. And let's do this again soon. Thanks a lot, Ambassador. Thank you so much, Dantero. It's a great honor and a pleasure to be here with you. Great friend of Brazil. Muito obrigado. Obrigado a você. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 